0: All right, so that's the big question. How do we know that the Bible is true? And so what would you say if somebody asked you that? If it was a, a friend, a coworker, somebody at the bus stop with your kids, not that kids go to bus stops anymore because everybody's homeschooled, but what would you say? Somebody, if somebody hits you with that question. You're a Christian. How do you know the Bible is true? What do you think? I knew you were going to be trouble when you started talking. Okay. She's coming. Yeah. Three continents, 66 books, 40 authors, all kinds of different genres. and Somehow they all say the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. The internal harmony. Yeah, historically verifiable, good. Lily Bean, how do you know the Bible's true? Um, well, everything's, true in the Bible. everything's true in the Bible, okay? Because. because... God's, never sinful. God's never sinful, and God would never lie, right? Mm-hmm. That's so good. I love that answer. You guys like took like three or four of my really big answers, so that'll shave off a couple minutes tonight. Yeah. And the Bible says it's true. Yeah, if you want to see an atheist's head explode and like trip over themselves to like carve out your jugular, that's what you would say, just because the Bible says it's true. And they're just like, <laughs> circular reasoning, oh! But we all use circular reasoning because we all appeal to logic in order to... Uh, to verify things, but we're not allowed to use circular reasoning when we're talking about the Bible, right? Those are good answers. Those are good answers, and we'll cover some of those tonight. The great R.C. Sproul answered when asked this, how do we know anything is true? (laughs) It's the science of how we know what we know, which is a big word, epistemology, right? A big word. How do we know what we know? The science of knowing. In a way, it's like proving God's existence, right? We can never prove God's existence beyond a shadow of a doubt. Like, we kind of got to think, like, sometimes we we get equipped to do these things, and we're like, I'm just going to blow every single person away with all of my knowledge, and they're going to forced through logic and reason that they're going to have to believe in God. But we can't do that. We can't prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt, nor can we really prove that the Bible's true beyond a shadow of a doubt to everyone's expectations, right? We are after enough reasonable evidence so that it really makes people think, and then we let the Holy Spirit do the rest because the Holy Spirit is the one that opens people's eyes. So speaking of God, if we're going to say the Bible is true, then we're going to say that it's God's word. And as Lily reminded us, right, that means something. And as as such then, the question of whether the Bible is true is directly related to the character of God himself, right? Because if God exists, and we're going to say this is God's word, then that relates to the character of God Himself. And so to draw a frequent comparison, I was squabbling with some atheists online when they read my latest blog post and they said miracles are impossible. And I said, Well, if God exists, then miracles exist. Right? If he's not, then sure, you might be right. Then miracles are impossible. But because God exists, then you gotta at least give me that miracles could exist. And if he exists the way the Bible says he does, then yes, right? Same thing, right? If God exists as the Bible claims him to be, then his word is true. It has to be. And so we have to always kind of bring it back to God and the character of God. As Lily said, God can't be sinful, right? He can't lie. And so if he he exists, then his word is true. And so in the hopes of trying to put some boundaries around this and some buckets i want to give us three categories tonight to think about how to get our arms around the question of how we know the bible is true and i'm going to say god wrote the bible god preserved the bible and that god speaks through the bible so just three buckets to help us. God wrote the Bible, God preserved the Bible, and God speaks through the Bible. So let's look at the first one, that, that God wrote the Bible. And I have a minimalistic outline for you guys, or, uh, because I never know when my remote control is going to stop working. So I didn't want to be too dependent on my slides. So it's a common misunderstanding. Maybe if you've talked to somebody about the Bible and the truth of the Bible, maybe they would say, yeah, well, man wrote the Bible. Right? And so therefore, the Bible contains mistakes, because everybody knows men are not perfect. right? Anybody ever heard that before? Yeah. That men wrote the Bible, so therefore the Bible's full of mistakes. But again, we have to go back to what the Bible says about itself. Now somebody head over to Second Peter. We're going to look up these passages together. Second Peter one, 20 to 22. And we'll see what the Bible says about who wrote the Bible. Anybody got that and can read it in a loud, authoritarian voice? Maybe with an English accent. Second Peter 1, 20 through 22. Anyone? You got it? Read it. Go ahead. Okay. Thank you. So this is, it, it claims right in 1 Peter that this is not something that is man's idea, right? And verse 21 sums that up for us very nicely. Uh, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, right? And so that's the idea that God inspired and we're going to look at four key do- or four or five well four key doctrines in this the first one's the doctrine of the inspiration of scripture so god wrote the bible and therefore it is inspired right it is inspired by god they were carried along these authors wrote these words using their brains and their pens and their finger muscles right but they were carried along by the holy spirit right and when we talk about some big words like Plenary verbal inspiration. Anybody heard of that one? That's a good after-dinner word. Plenary verbal inspiration. So God inspired the whole Bible, plenary, right? But he gave writers freedom to write according to their own personalities, right? It's not like they got into their cave with their little candle and they had their their charcoal ink mixed with whatever else it's going to be mixed with and they stretched out their animal skins and, and they just got into this trance and they had no idea what they were doing but they just kept writing and writing and writing and they didn't. It's not like that. God worked through the personalities of these men. They understood what they were doing. They They wrote exactly what he intended them to write, but he did it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this balances human effort and divine elements in Scripture, but it maintains the Holy Spirit as the ultimate author of Scripture. It also reflects the personalities of the authors. We see that all the time. We see that in Matthew as we're going through Matthew. We see Matthew's personality in that. We see it all throughout the Psalms, right, with, with David in, in his highs and in his lows and all of that in between. And so because it's inspired, because God wrote the Bible inspired through the Holy Spirit, it's also going to be the second one, which is inerrant. Anybody know what inerrant means? Without error. Without error. Yes, exactly. And so let's jump over to uh, John seventeen seventeen. A quick verse. There are definitely other verses that we can go to that would help us look at the inerrancy of Scripture. But somebody can read John 17:17 17, 17 for us. In the words of Jesus, my Bible's read there, so it looks like it must be Jesus. Anybody? Sanctify them in the truth, thy word is true. Oh, you're rolling King James on us. Wow. Sanctify them in the truth, thy word or your word is true and so standard, wow still Amer- new american standard has the thighs Not new american, standard. american standard wow okay all right I don't have my. they have the these and the thous too as well as the thighs like yeah there is some sort of poetry with these and those i got gotcha. you I understand. So so Jesus tells us directly in this verse that God's word, your word is truth. Right? So it is in error. So if it's true, it cannot contain errors. And that's where we get into and we'll get off on too much of a tangent here, is like what qualifies as an error. And that's different from like a, a, an atheistic or agnostic camp to how we understand what the Bible is and how it was written and how it was canonized and all of that. We'll talk about that in a little while. But just because one, one person says there was two donkeys and then the other writer says there was one donkey, that doesn't necessarily mean it's an error, right? It's not a mistake. It not, it's not, does not detract from the doctrine of what the Bible... Here's the key thing to remember what the Bible is actually communicating. Like, it is totally true in what it is intending to communicate. And, of course, the biggest thing it's intending to communicate is revelation about God and who we are in light of God and the plan of God and all of that. So the Bible is completely true and completely correct in what it communicates, right? Uh, number three, authoritative. And we'll jump over to Hebrews, which the men know well. As we've spent some good time in Hebrews at the diner, just this morning we broke into chapter 5, so this passage will be, uh, will be familiar to us. Somebody got Hebrews 4, 12 through 13? Anyone? Justin? A- amen. You actually taught on this passage, didn't you? You actually did. I remember that as you were reading it. I'm like, wow, it's like just like he just did that. I remember that voice saying those words. Yeah, so especially um, verse 13, right? No creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of whom we must give an account. If we're going to give an account, that means he's an authority over us, right? And that's through the word of God. So it is. It is. God wrote the Bible. It's inspired. It's inerrant. It's authoritative. What does that practically mean for us as Christians if the Bible is authoritative? We can rely on it. We read it. It's true. We can rely on it and read it. It's true. Absolutely. What else? Em, you and I were just talking about this moments ago. What does it mean? We have to obey, have to obey it <laughs> <laughs> if it says to do stuff we got to realize that we need to submit ourselves under the authority of Scripture and actually do that stuff that it says to do, right? Because we say Scripture is, well, we say Scripture says it's authoritative, but we believe in that as well. One of the major differences between uh, liberal, progressive, maybe mainline churches, right? They've walked away from all that they've said the bible is not authoritative. And of course the Roman Catholic Church would say that the bible's not authoritative. We're authoritative and we give the authority to the bible not the other way around, right? So we at Highlands would say that's not true. The bible's authoritative and we submit ourselves to it for church life and for home life and all of that. Okay? And last but not least, God wrote the bible and therefore it is sufficient passage that you probably thought and expect that I would have gotten to, 2 Timothy 2, sorry, 3, 16 and 17, somebody got that, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, It is. Complete and equipped for for everybody? God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay. Uh, Okay. Okay. You inserted the end. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so you you could also use this verse, the first part of 16, right, to talk about inspiration, uh, which is a really cool word in the Greek. Theonoustos, breathed out by God. So it is really, we talk about pneuma or neustas, it's actually the breath. It's actually the soul of something. And theo, oh, of course, meaning God. So it is literally God breathing, God creating, God giving life to his word. It is literally the creative breath of God. And when we talk about that, obviously you can't talk, get, get rid of Genesis 1. God's the creator of everything. So, of course, he created his word. But he created his word. He inspired that word. But verse 17 is kind of what we're after, uh, that the man of God, the woman of God as well, may be competent, equipped for every good work. So scripture is sufficient, right? Is it sufficient to tell me how to fix the starter on my lawnmower? No, it's not, right? But it's sufficient to tell me how I should be acting when I'm fixing the starter <laughs> on my lawnmower, right? Uh, how, I, how I look at that, how I interpret life in that. So it's, again, what it is saying, right? It is sufficient. So for all of life, for all of faith, for all of our growth in righteousness, it is sufficient. So answer number one to how do we know the Bible is true? Because God wrote the Bible. And you know, we also uh, have to talk about Jesus, right? And Jesus, one of the best testimonies to Scripture's truth is what Jesus thought about Scripture, right? And there are several places uh, where Jesus uses the words God said when thinking about Scripture. Just jump over to John 15 really quick, and I'll just show you one of them. No, it's probably not John. It's probably Matthew 15, isn't it? Yes, it is. Sorry, Matthew 15. Matthew 15 He's uh, tangling with the Pharisees once again. Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God? For the sake of your tradition. For God commanded, or actually it would take issue with ESV here. It's actually uh, Lego in the Greek, which means speak. or so, For God said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles your father and mother must surely die. So Jesus says, God said, and then he quotes scripture. And if we want to like, play the devil's advocate card here, it's like, well, Moses wrote that, so wouldn't it be Moses said? It's like, no, God said. Jesus said God wrote those words. Right? And then he contrasts that even in verse 5. He says, but you say... So the difference between what the Pharisees are saying, right, in their own wisdom, and then what God actually has said in His Word. So so one of the best witnesses we have of God's authority, um, His inerrancy, His inspiration, His sufficiency in Scripture is what Jesus thought, what Jesus thought about the Word of God, right? What happened when Jesus was tempted by the devil? He quoted Scripture, that's the first thing he reached for as his weapons was he quoted Scripture. So it's sufficient, it's authoritative, it's inerrant, it's inspired, right? So if we're going to question the truth of Scripture, we had better define terms and be on the same ground of what Scripture says about itself. Okay, so One of the things you'll find when you're talking to people about apologetics or talking to people about faith is you've got to define terms. You've got to get to, like, what do you mean by that? Like, what are you talking about? Like, why do you think that the Bible's not true? What does that mean? How did you come to that conclusion? What are you thinking about? So you've got to ask a lot of questions to untangle and define some terms there. But I just wanted to read very quickly from our doctrinal statement. Um, and most of you are members, so you would understand that, right? From our doctrinal statement, this is what Highlands Bible Church has, has, has summarized the doctrine uh, of Scripture. It says, we believe in the inspiration and inerrancy of the Scriptures, Right there, progressive Christians and other people have just dropped out and stopped reading, right? <laughs> we believe in the inspiration and the inerrancy of the Scriptures, meaning the Bible, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, is complete in every respect. It is the verbally inspired Word of God, Second Timothy, 1 Peter. We believe it's without error in the original writings, which we'll talk about in a minute, true, and authoritative, and sufficient for faith and life. So if somebody goes to Highlands Bible Church website and looks at what we believe. That's what we believe. And so if you want to take a look at the doctrinal statement again, that's what we believe about the Bible. Okay? So how do we know the Bible is true? Well, for, for one, God wrote it. And we look at these passages to give us a little more info in that. All right? We also can know Scripture is true because God preserved the Bible. Okay? God preserved the Bible. It's actually a miracle, not only that the Bible was written, but that the Bible was preserved over thousands of years. This is another way that we can know the Bible is true. And so the writing, if we were to look at the writing of the Old and New Testaments, and disclaimer, caveat, I'm going to be flying over some major (laughs) topics here. You could spend hours talking about each one of these things, but this is midweek. This is an overview, so maybe we'll just some, you know, pique some interest in you, and you can go dig into these things a little deeper, right? But if we talk about the writing of the Old Testament and the New Testament, how were the books actually written in the Old Testament? What were they, what were they written on? Well, first we look at Moses, right? He wrote them on stone, stone tablets. We also have the world's first iPad, which is actually a wooden tablet that was wax. And you could actually write on the wax of what, was going, what, what you were writing down. And then you could transfer it to something that's more permanent. And when you were done, you could wipe out the wax and start over. World's first iPad was the wax wooden tablet. Right? You could also use leather animal skins, which is as gross as it sounds. And also very hard to write on. And last but certainly not least and most popular, you could write with, on papyrus. Which is a reed plant that grows along the Nile. They cut it into strips, and they smash it down, and then they kind of cross-layer it, and then they let it dry and keep flattening it out, and it it comes to be something you could write on. That's kind of most of the Old Testament. What was the Old Testament written in? Hebrew and Aramaic. Absolutely, yeah. Mostly Hebrew. Aramaic appears a couple times in in Daniel, and I think one other place, um, but mostly in Hebrew. All right, Old, uh, sorry, New Testament. If we look at very quickly the writing of the New Testament, it was written on papyrus as well. So that continued into the writing of the, the New Testament. But then also parchment comes into play. Parchment's made from animal skins, which is uh, kind of a step above just like the leather stuff. They would stretch them out. They would uh, take the animal skins of sheep or calves or goats. They would soak them. They'd make them white and stretch them out and dry them. You could actually write on them pretty easily. Um, Paper didn't come into play till about 900 A.D. What was the New Testament written in? Yeah, New Testament was written in Greek. Why was it written in Greek? Weren't they speaking Aramaic still in, in Jerusalem or speaking Hebrew? Why was it written in Greek? Yeah, yeah. The lingua franca, I believe they call that. The universal language. Yeah. <laughs> Right, right. Yep, yeah. (laughs) Yes. Um, So, when we talk about the writing of the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? (laughs) Rhoda's texting me funny things in the middle and distracting me. Are there original writings of all these things? Like, do we have animal skins or do we have the original Ten Commandments or do we have, like, you know, original parchment or papyrus? Lori's shaking her head that we don't have them. So if we don't have them, how can we possibly know what the Bible says? What happened to the original writings? Copied and recopied. Yep, copied and recopied. Yes, hold that thought. I'm going to get to that in a second. The original, the, anybody know what the original writings were called? Called the autographs, the original writings. were, And they're gone. They're all gone, mainly because... If you're going to write on an animal skin, it's not going to last very long. And the climate, of course, if you're not like trying to take care of it, it's just eventually going to disintegrate, right? But I also found um, some other interesting reasons as to why we don't have the originals. First of all, as we said, kind of age and decay. I mean, they only last so long. If you ever go have the chance to nerd out and go to a library or go to like the museum of the Bible or go to some other place where there's Bible on display, it's like they're in this climate-controlled environment and everything is humid, like a humidor and everything, you know. So otherwise, they're just going to be subject to the environment and they're going to fall apart and decay. Uh, Another reason was war and destruction of Israel, the fall of Jerusalem, right? And people took over Israel when, um, Babylonians came in, the Assyrians came in, not high on their priority list was maintaining their writings, right? They wanted to burn everything to the ground, so they wanted to destroy all that. Same thing when that happened in in Jerusalem with Rome. Third reason that I found was kind of interesting is because uh, people revered them so highly that they didn't want them to fall into enemy hands. Kind of like if we have military equipment, theoretically, that we don't want to fall into enemy hands. I'm going to leave that alone, right? We would destroy them before it gets there so we would just dis- the, the jews would destroy it before it got taken over by enemies and speaking of which if enemies did get their hands on it of course they would destroy that even if they were kind of enemies within their own ranks right that didn't believe that were maybe in rebellion against god they would try to destroy the writings and so again uh you would think that would be a huge problem if we didn't have any original writings. But as Lori said, it's not, because we have thousands and thousands of copies of the manuscript. Um, and so the original manuscripts are all gone, but we do have manuscript copies of both Old Testament and New Testament, and of course, together, right? We talk about the Old Testament copies. There are like two big biggies that we talk about, the Masoretic text, which was around 500 or so AD. The Masorites were from Tiberias. They were meticulous, nerdy scribes, and that's what they did. They just were all about the Old Testament. And so they meticulously cared for those manuscripts. In 1947, there was a young boy who was looking for some stray goats and threw a rock into a cave in Qumran. And does anybody know what he found? The Dead Sea Scrolls. And so the Dead Sea Scrolls found thousands or in those Dead Sea Scrolls were thousands of fragments and actually the whole book of Isaiah. And because, again, God preserved the Bible, they were kept in this cave under pretty much perfect conditions and sustained for a really, really long time. And so they found that. That's actually in Qumran. You can go and see the giant Isaiah scroll. Uh, We were there. It's, It's pretty cool. But uh, they have fragments that were really the earliest from the 2nd century B.C. And they were found in 1947. So what that also did is that they found then older manuscripts than the Masoretes had. And so they would, oh wow, let's go compare these to the Masoretes, And lo and behold, they were super, super accurate. I think one guy was like, Isaiah was 95% the same. And so that speaks to, again, how God preserved the copies of those things over thousands of years. And so it's one of the big things, that God has actually preserved it um, in that. New Testament, of course, we have thousands of copies in different languages from the second century on up. We have about 5,000 Greek copies of the New Testament. It's always changing, so they teach us in seminary not to, like, use exact numbers, because that usually changes. Um, to put that in perspective, for Homer's, Homer's Iliad, there's about 1750. And we have 5,000 copies in Greek alone. If you bring in other languages like Latin or Slavic or Arminian or Coptic, you're up around 20,000 copies of the New Testament manuscripts. It's just unbelievable that there's that many copies. And Josh McDowell, in his book, uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, said, compared with other ancient manuscripts, the Bible has more manuscript evidence to support it than 10 pieces of classical literature combined. It is, they'll use the word embarrassing. Like if you're a textual critic, it is embarrassing how many manuscripts you have to know what was written. And that's the science of textual criticism. You put them all together and you say like, well, this one says this, this one says this, we got... 4,999 manuscripts that use this word, and then we have one manuscript that doesn't. Who's right? You know, it's not a mistake. It's like, you know, somebody made a copying error, right? So the manuscripts were preserved in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and then we have the idea of the canon of Scripture, which is which is maintaining the, the true Scripture. What is, what is, why do they call it a canon? Is it actually shoot a cannonball or a flaming thing what's a cannon <laughs> what's a what's that oh yeah <laughs> absolutely a cannon is uh from the hebrew word kana which means read or stalk, Stalk, we get our word uh, cane from it. And so if you have that, you would frequently use that as a a straight edge and as a a, a ruler or a standard. And so you're essentially saying when you have a canon, it is a list of things that, that should line up to a standard. And so you apply that to the Bible, and we say these are the books that are in the canon that then fit the standard of what would be the word of God. Uh, one author defined it as a collection or list of books accepted as an authoritative rule of faith or practice. So they're, they're discovering the canon. And that's a really important word to use when we're talking about the canon. We don't create the canon. The church didn't create the canon. The church discovered the canon. The church looked at it and said, this is what is consistent to be God's word. And we'll look at a couple criteria in a minute. When we talk about the Old Testament canon, that's a little easier than the New Testament canon because we have thousands of years of Jewish history, right? And we have the temple, and we have the scribes, and we have the Pharisees. And so the Old Testament canon has been pretty well known for a long time. It was fiercely protected by the scribes, by the Pharisees. So we knew all about the the law, the the prophets, and the writings, right? Um, One author said the Jewish people preserve the writings of their prophets because they believed them to come directly from God. Like, they were so obsessive, compulsive about the manuscripts. Like, you wrote the word Yahweh, you had to go wash and then come back and continue. Like, it was insane. And so they really believed that the law, the prophets, and the writings were directly from God. So the, the Old Testament canon, we, we, we've had that for a long time, thanks to the Jewish religion. But the New Testament canon, by the second century, right? So if, if Jesus then, you know, all the apostles started dying out at the end of the first century, right? So it's like, okay, one of the common things you'll read from Bart Ehrman or some other angry atheists, right, are, are saying, well, it was written decades, if not hundreds of years, after all the disciples left, so they just made it say whatever they wanted it to say. And that's just not true. Because by the mid second century, it was clear they were already treating the New Testament as scripture. And we look at, uh, let's look at one internal witness in scripture. Jump over to 1 Timothy five eighteen. Let me cough. 1 Timothy five 18. I'll read that for us. Paul writing to Timothy. It says, for scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. I mean, you know, who hasn't used that as their own personal quiet time, right? And not to mention, that is Deuteronomy 25.4. So people are like, no, duh, Paul. It's from the book of Deuteronomy. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. But then he says, and the laborer deserves its wages, or laborer deserves his wages, or her wages. That's not in the Old Testament. That's in read in my Bible. And that's actually from Luke chapter 10, verse seven. And so the internal witness of, of Scripture itself is calling what's actually being written in the gospel's scripture. So it's referring to the, the Old Testament of Scripture, which people are like no-brainer, but then it's also referring to the New Testament as Scripture, which is nerd fest, mind-blowing, like, how did they know that it was already Scripture? Well, because they already knew it was Scripture. <laughs> they had the testimony of the Holy Spirit. They knew what was going on. They were being inspired by the Holy Spirit. Right? So this is a great verse to look at Scripture's internal witness and the preservation of Scripture and the preservation of the testimony of Scripture. Um, but how do we know the canon, right? You'll also hear that too. Like the church just put in the books that it wanted to put in kicked out the books that it disagreed with which is not true because we have things like the Muratorian uh, fragment from 190 A.D., which lists the books of the Bible, almost complete. We have the church fathers from the second century and onward who quoted almost all the books of the Bible, and many times they had a list of the books of the Bible. And so these guys were, were walking around saying, these are the books of the Bible, and they were quoting them in the, in their works Many of you maybe have heard of the Apocrypha or the uh, Secret Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas. Right, if Ron were here, he'd be screaming on and on about Enoch or, you know, Nephilim or something like that, right? How do we know that, love you, Ron, how do we know that those were not supposed to be in the canon? Like, maybe they messed up, right? How do we know that? Um, Well, for one thing, the biggest thing is that Nowhere in the New Testament is anybody quoting any of those books. Nowhere in the New Testament is Jesus going to say, it says in the Gospel of Thomas, or it said in Enoch, or it said in Esdras, or something like that, right? He's just not going to... Yeah, he alluded to Enoch. Yeah, it's possible. I have heard that a couple times, and I haven't... Every time I hear that, I'm like, yeah, I need to look at that, and I haven't... I don't think it's a direct quotation, but yes. I believe there is something there where Jude um, uh, kind of refers to Enoch in some way. But it's never in an authoritative way, like especially the way Jesus would say it, like God said this, right? So uh, there's a really, really good book on the canon by a really, really smart guy, and he identifies four things that the church uh, uses when they look at um, canonical books. First, that canonical books are written with divine authority. And usually that means they're a prophet, they're an apostle, they're they're not just somebody who's saying that they're writing scripture. They have divine authority. They're also recognized and used as scripture by the early church. That's huge. We look to see what the church itself used to train people in the faith. And third, church reaches a consensus around those books. And they do that. There are some really, really wacky things in some of the apocryphal books, right? Talking crosses and all kinds of weird things, right? And you... <laughs> Yes, the, the Nephilim is in the canon, absolutely. Um, but that's the point, right? We look at the standard of what we know to be scripture, and then we see something else that talks about a talking cross or something, and we're like, that just doesn't fit right? So church reaches a consensus and discovers what really is consistent and what is not. And the other thing is that there's a really good argument to say, like, people, every time there was a revelation, right? Old Testament, you had, you had a revelation from God. You had Moses hearing from God, right? You expect to have something then written down to then back that up. And so if Jesus comes in and inaugurates a new covenant in that, Wouldn't you expect that there would be new writing to accompany what that would? And I think that's a really, really strong argument. So if there's a new covenant, there's new revelation expected, all right? So so answer number two, God preserved the Bible, and he preserved it miraculously. And we can see, even if we just look at the number of manuscripts, like we were talking about a little while ago, it's amazing how much God has done in that, okay? But the third way might be probably one of the more practical ways um, in that God speaks through the Bible. And there's really kind of two things. There's, there's, we talk about external evidence and we talk about internal evidence, right? And so one of the things for external evidence is that, as Lori said, right, that there, there's one story here. There's, there's, and all the, all the authors said and supported that one story. And I say it all the time, but there could be four parts to it, right? I, I didn't make it up, right? There could be creation, God created the world, and then we get into fall, that man fell into sin, rejected God, separated from God. Therefore, we're in need of redemption, which, of course, is through Jesus Christ. And then we're in between those two times right now where we're waiting for Christ to come back and restore all things, right? But do we not see that every day in the world around us? Do we not, the external evidence of what the Bible actually conveys. I mean, our world screams. You look at creation, and it screams in the beauty and the complexity of creation that there actually is a God that created all of this. We can't do that, right? And we look, of course, at sin and evil and natural disasters and all kinds of things and corruption that the world brings, and sickness, and it's explained by the fall. It's explained that sin came in and ruined God's purpose, and all of us experience that every single day, right? And that hope for redemption that we see in Jesus Christ, of course, the only worldview that could possibly make sense of how our sins could be atoned for by someone who is perfect in God, and then the hope of Him returning and judging and making all things right. I mean, it's really a worldview that we just see verified in our world every single day. So if we talk about external evidence, we see it all day, every day, and that God is speaking and calling us to himself. So you kind of got to zoom out and look at the bigger picture of what scripture is telling us, and we see that in the world around us. Um, Somebody also said earlier, too, that, you know, we have extra biblical, what we call outside biblical, or just historical evidence, and if you talk about the, the New Testament writings, if you talk about what happens, like you have guys like Josephus or Tacitus or other Roman historians, that, Jewish historians, Roman historians that are walking around that aren't Christians that testify to these things, that these things happen. We have evidence of what happened uh, to the Jews, of course, in Assyria and all those other things. So there's, there's external evidence that, that we, can, we can call upon. But there's also internal evidence And this is where we can jump back to a passage. And of course, this is where the atheist would lose their mind, right? because we're we're calling on saying, here's how we're going to prove the Bible's true. It's the Bible, and they're going to go, that's circular reasoning, you're stupid, and I knew you're stupid, and I won. Right? But it's not really true, because the internal evidence for the Bible, we can sum up in a passage like we just read in Hebrews 4. It says, the word of God's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Who has not read scripture and felt like they got punched in the face by something, right? We read scripture, it is not like any other book, right? We read scripture, it's not like reading the news on your app, or it's not like reading a a fiction book or something like that it is living and active and it does cut us something happens when we read the word of god or it should and that's the holy spirit right so the internal testimony of of scripture happens really inside of us inside of our hearts and souls right who has not heard testimony of people who have been saved by reading scripture because it actually makes sense. You know, I don't have one of those moments where I can point to where, you know, I got knocked off my horse and I was blinded and a light came down and I, you know, received Christ. Mine was more of a gradual seesaw kind of thing where it was like, okay, well, I guess I'm a Christian now because that makes sense. But I can remember trying uh, to read Ephesians 2 and, and, and getting to, you know, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God. Because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with him. Like, I'm not going to get weird, but I felt like I heard an audible click. Like, I just felt like, wow. Like, I get it now. I get why I need a savior. I get what he came to do. I get my position that I was in before. And thank you, God, for what you've given me. That's not going to happen through any other book. That's the internal testimony of the truth of scripture. And you can pick up another reference really quick in First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2. There's pesky Thessalonians. First Thessalonians 2.13. Paul, right did you write such small books? They're hard to find. 1 <laughs> Thessalonians 2.13 says, And we also thank God constantly for this, When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, watch this, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Same thing, Scripture testifying to itself that it's not just the word of men, it's what it is. And the early church at Thessalonica received it as the word of God, and it's at work in them. And so any believer should be able to testify to these truths, right? And it's kind of one of those things where you, you can't convince someone that, yeah, when I read the Word of God, I feel that conviction, or I feel that encouragement, or I feel that comfort, or I feel that whatever, right? You can't convince them of that. But that doesn't mean it's not true, right? We've got to remember that. So the Bible in and of itself, internal evidence as, as uh Lori started us off with, right, written over 1,500 years by 40 authors and says one story. Right? There was one thing I read today earlier, uh, again, in that Josh McDowell book. um, There was a compilation of all these different classical writers from a certain time period, and I can't remember what it was, but he was just struck by... The difference in all of their worldview, and the difference in everything that they were trying to say, and, and the perspective of each one, right? All written kind of within that same time period, but yet the Bible written probably close to two thousand years, all has that same, same thrust of who God is, who we are as sinners, our need of a Savior, who is to come, the Messiah, and of course Jesus Himself, right? So the Bible consists or, or presents a, a consistent worldview. There really no other Bi no other religion does. So thoughts, questions? Well, something I was about, I mean, the Bible is very clear about Yeah. Bible's clear about unbelievers. Right. Natural mind cannot accept the things, the spiritual mind, yeah. We're going to talk about that on Sunday. I don't know why I do that, because you're going to remember. You just quoted Sunday's passage. Do get something extra to my patrons? No, but you might get a giveaway book. But I'm sorry, I totally interrupted you. <laughs> I got excited. <laughs> but your point is well taken, right? That that until the Holy Spirit opens those eyes, right? We could be so excited about the truth of Scripture, the impact of Scripture, the realization that it's God's Word and what it can do and all of that stuff. And they're going, huh? You ever read Leviticus? I read a couple parts of it. It's scary. You're like, you know, you read the, the, the conquest of Canaan and things and they're just like, how in the world could that ever be helpful to you? But they don't have... That mind. They don't have the Holy Spirit. So we've got to remember that too. We're not trying to intellectually convince someone to be a Christian. Right? As Greg Kokel says, we're just trying to be a pebble in their shoe. You know? So when did the Catholic Church add the extra books to their version of the Bible? They added it after Trent, I think it was fifteen forty six. Okay, so after it was the reactionary? After the Eastern Orthodox split too. Yes. The Great Schism was like in 10 something or other. Yeah. Okay. So they, it was really a reaction to the Reformation is what it was. Oh, okay. Accepting those books, right? And, and various church fathers would say, you know, I think Augustine was one of them too, my homeboy. He's like, no, they're, they're fine, you know. But I don't know if he would say they're on the same level of Scripture, right? They're good for uh, information. But they're not good. Uh, they're not divinely inspired. Right? There's different interpretations. But yeah, Catholics included them in the canon. Right. They said they were deutero-canonical. They were, they were subsequently included in the canon, which is, yeah, no. And that's subsequently where they get some of their key doctrines. Purgatory or praying for the dead or merit system or something like that. Oh, purgatory comes from those? I believe so. Yeah. Okay. I know prayers for the dead do, does. Yeah, I know prayers for yeah. possible. It's possible. I'm not sure you're there. Yeah, I'm not up on my, uh, I'm not an expert <laughs> Catholic theologian either. Any other thoughts or comments or questions or disparaging remarks? I have three giveaway books. I have two of the same book, and I have one of this book. Uh, this book is really cool. <clears throat> it's put together by a guy named Tim challies and Josh Byers, and if you're familiar with Tim Challies, you should be. He's a he's a blogger from, uh, he's been blogging probably for like 20 years now, one of the, one of the original bloggers, um, but he does a lot of book reviews and a lot of other helpful things, and he teamed up with this guy to do a visual theology series, and this one's called A Visual Theology God, a Guide to the Bible, and it has amazing graphics in it, and there's one in here that I want to to show you if I can find where it is. That was a good one, but that wasn't it. So here is uh, how has the Bible been preserved for us today? And these little dots represent manuscript copies of of different uh, writers uh, from Tacitus to Herodotus to Plato to Caesar to Homer's Iliad and then the New Testament. It just keeps on going. So it's kind of a, it's a really cool. He does stuff like that throughout it. There's, there's a lot of pictures, not many words, right? So that's one book. And then this book is uh, by one of my professors, Dr. Timothy Paul Jones at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And this book is simply called How We Got the Bible. And this also is a very easy read. It does also have lots of pictures in it as well and lots of charts. All right. But it is also very, very helpful for everything that we've been talking about. It's good. Ron's not here to defend himself. Yeah, but he's listening. He is listening. <laughs> so I'm definitely going to give. No. Do you want it? There's two. No, I, I'm so behind in my reading. If I take a book, it'll be a dust catcher. Okay. So I've got two of these, and I got one of Chali's. Who wants them? Come on now. These are good. These are good even for, like, you know, um, coffee table books and things like that. You can pick it up. Which one did you? I'll have that one. You'll have that Thank one? You. It's a little bent, but I didn't, you know, it's, it's still new. All right, I, I got two of Timothy Paul Jones. Anyone? 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 That's why it's like, I, that's why I did these books, because they're not like nerdy books that you read. Like, you could, you could literally just like cruise through a chapter of this and be like, oh, wow, that's what an animal skin looks like. Okay, cool. So. Anyone burning desire? Okay. All right. I'll just okay. Ken wants it. I know he did. Like he yeah. <laughs> All right. So we've done our giveaways. We've looked at how do we know the Bible is true? Um there's lots more resources on this stuff, guys, and some of this stuff we were scratching the surface on because, you know, it's just midweek and we want to do an overview. But if you want more information, if you said, like, hey, you know, like, I'm, I really would like to know more about the Canon or whatever else, let me know. Talk to me. And Oh, good. It just decided to stop working, so I made it. Um, I can definitely point you in the direction of more resources um, for that. OK? Um, brief programming announcement. Uh, I know we're just underway in midweek, but we're not going to have midweek next week. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> I'm gonna be away, and so I—I I know I knew I would take flack for this. I'm sorry, but I figured I would tell you guys now, and you could get it all out of your system, and you know we'll pick right up again. Disparaging remark now. You have a disparaging—that is a disparaging remark now, right? I know. I'm sorry. That's why I tried to tried to give you your money's worth on the first night, so you could really think about these things. All right. Could have. It's not. Roger. <laughs> Rita, were you that kid in class who would be like, uh, "Excuse me, aren't we supposed to take a quiz today?" <laughs> you get like pens thrown at you. All right. Thank you, guys. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word and, um, Lord. We are well aware that our society is increasingly hostile to you, and especially anything related to you, your church, um, us, your word, and Lord, help us when... We're in those situations when, when someone would make a comment of uh, the Bible is written by men or the Bible is full of mistakes or or whatever, Lord, that we'd be able to to pull some of these things maybe together or other things that we learned in Scripture and be able to, to, uh, Lord, give an answer for the hope that we have and do so with gentleness and respect, not to win an argument and certainly not to intellectually defeat our opponents, but Really to share with them the hope and to bring them hopefully to a knowledge of Jesus and let the Holy Spirit open their eyes uh, to salvation. We pray that you would increase our confidence and our faith as we read in uh, Thessalonians that we receive the Bible not as the words of men, but as what it is, the words of God, uh, which is at work in our hearts. So cause that to be at work within our hearts. We rejoice that your word is living and active and continues the work. We pray that you will bring us to maturity and we look forward to that day when that will be in completion with you. We pray it all in Jesus' name, amen.